I'm going to begin our conversation today by reading you two passages, one from 2006 and one from 2013. Taken together, I call them A Tale of Two Rudys. In 2006, as work went forward on his new mansion, Rudy Kerniawan's future looked bright. By year's end, he was striding atop the fine wine auction market as both buyer and seller. In just two mega auctions that year, New York auctioneer Acker, Merrill, and Condit sold 17,000 bottles of Rudy wine for just over $35 million. The sales were known as Sellers 1 and 2. The first was held in January at the wine-centric restaurant Crew. It fetched a handsome $10.6 million. The second, that October, stretched over two days at Cafe Gray in Time Warner Center, overlooking the southwest corner of Central Park. Seller 2 brought in $24.69 million, a record for a single wine auction. Though his name was absent from the catalogs, it was an open secret that Kerniawan was the consigner, that is, the owner of the goods who had placed them with the auctioneer to be sold. At both auctions, a jovial Kerniawan mingled with the crowd. Okay, so that's the first. Let's contrast it with the second from seven years later in 2013. The next morning at 10.55, Judge Berman was handed a note saying that a verdict had been reached. The jurors had deliberated for slightly under two hours. They filed back into the courtroom. Rudy Kerniawan, dressed in an ill-fitting gray suit, stood tight-lipped, his hands twined in front of him, as the judge's clerk asked, With regard to count one, mail fraud, the alleged scheme to create, sell, and attempt to sell counterfeit wine, you find the defendant, Rudy Kerniawan, guilty, said the foreperson. With regard to count two, wine fraud, the alleged scheme to defraud fine art capital, you find the defendant, Rudy Kerniawan, guilty. Kerniawan's two lawyers whispered to each other. Their client, once lionized as a prince of winedom, now 37, still looked too young to legally buy a bottle of wine. Those were two excerpts from In Vino Duplicitas by Peter Hellman. The book we'll be discussing today. This book was all about Rudy Kerniawan. That's a name I doubt you've ever heard unless you happen to be a wine collector. Why do we care about Rudy? Well, he was one of the most notorious wine forgers to ever exist. He spent 10 years in prison for his crimes, which included selling over $20 million of forged wine to a bunch of different people. If you're like me and you drink most of your wine out of a box, you probably had no idea wine could be forged. But Rudy was an expert at it. Fine wine, like fine art, is coveted, collected, and traded on a pretty deep market. The more rare the wine, the more expensive the bottle, obviously. Rudy became a master of creating bottles of wine that looked and tasted like some of the rarest, finest wines on the market. He would refill bottles, reuse corks and labels, and blend different wines to get the taste just right. And then he would sell these bottles at auction. He made millions off of wine that was basically worth nothing. It was just a very good copy, like a Louis Vuitton bag you'd buy in the back room of a building in Chinatown, New York City. We'll go into a lot more detail later, but I wanted to start with some simple background because you've probably never heard of this fraud. I hadn't until I found the book on Amazon. This fraud isn't quite in the same ballpark as the ones we've discussed so far. Madoff, Theranos, and FTX were all much bigger. But after reading this book, I realized there's still a lot of value in studying Rudy Kerniawan and his crime because the themes we've covered in our first three episodes also appear in Rudy's story. This tells me that fraud at every level is more or less the same. The tools and approaches and mindsets you would use to avoid a fraud in a $100 million investment are the same ones you'd apply to buying $100,000 worth of wine. The maxims we've been building so far across this season apply here as well. Maxims like desire is blinding, ask an expert, and anomalies need explanations. So we're going to touch on each of those with examples and stories from this particular fraud. But first, let's learn a little bit about the story's central character, Rudy Kerniawan. Rudy was Indonesian by birth, but Chinese by blood. He was born in 1976 into what was rumored to be a wealthy family. 
but details of his early life are pretty hard to come by. Sometime around 1993, Rudy arrived in California, where he graduated from Cal State University, Northridge. Rudy applied for asylum in the United States due to the persecution of ethnic Chinese by the Muslims in Indonesia. But that asylum was denied in 2003. Rudy remained in the United States anyway. According to the story Rudy told, his foray into the world of wine began around the year 2000, when he ordered a bottle of Opus One, a California Cabernet, at a San Francisco restaurant while celebrating his father's birthday. That Opus One lit the fuse that would burn long and hot before leading to a disastrous explosion. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This passage from the book describes Rudy in the beginning. Something about that bottle clicked open a previously inactive sensory circuit in Kerniawan. Wasting no time, he embarked on an informal crash course, learning all he could about wine. He began to show up at wine tastings at shops in and around Los Angeles. His corkscrew was hyperactive. Elite Napa Valley Reds, like that Opus One, came first on his shopping list. The more difficult they were to get, the more eagerly Kerniwan sought them. He also fancied muscle-flexing, amped-up Australian Reds. Kerniwan sped on to high-end Bordeaux, then began a deep engagement with the intricacies of Burgundy. In those early days, he was buying copiously from Woodland Hills Wine Company, a shop with a deep inventory of high-end wine located in the San Fernando Valley. Kyle Smith, whose family owned the shop, invited Kearney Wan to become a member of a tasting group of Burgundy buffs calling themselves Berg Whores. They were tasting wines at price points that required wealth, and Kearney Wan seemed to have it. Being a member of Berg Whores gave Kearney Wan entree to a world where he quickly rose to a starring role. It wasn't only that he stepped up with trophy bottles. He had a puppy dog talent for charming his fellow Berg Whores. Where he and his money came from, nobody knew. He was a one-off. Where he and his money came from, nobody knew. That's an interesting line because it pops up again and again throughout the book. The number we also hear repeatedly is $1 million per month. That, Rudy would tell people, was the monthly allowance he would receive from his family back home. His only responsibility was taking care of his mother. There was a rumor that Rudy's family controlled the distribution rights for Heineken in parts of Asia, but that turned out to not be true. The author never definitively nails down Rudy's source of funds, but one investigation suggests that Rudy's uncles were convicted of embezzling nearly a billion dollars from various Indonesian government entities. Most of that money was never recovered. Another data point seems to confirm this suspicion. Rudy's mother, Leniwadi Tan, can be found in the Offshore Leaks database as the owner of a BVI shell company, likely one of the beneficiaries of her brother's ill-gotten gains. Based on my reading of the book, that's where I'd guess Rudy got his money ultimately from the fruits of his uncle's crimes. Anyway, let's go back to Rudy's wine education. Rudy was buying and tasting crazy amounts of wine, and he seemed to have a natural gift for tasting it. I loved this explanation from the book. What he tasted, he precisely remembered. If the wine was a multi-grape blend, he seemed to be able to pick out each variety by its character. In his classic The Taste of Wine, Emile Peinade suggested a simple way to explain the difference between average wine tasters and the truly gifted. It's done by analogy to what the ear hears. Go to a room adjoining one where people are gathered and hold up a fine crystal wine glass. Strike the edge of the bowl with a fingernail or a spoon so that it pings. In the other room, the least sensitive listener hears only an unknown sound. One level up, a more discerning listener identifies the sound as the pleasurable ping of crystal. The gifted listener, hearing the same ping, says that vibration corresponds to the note E. She has the perfect pitch. Kerniawan has it for wine. So Rudy kept buying and tasting wine, fueled by his million-dollar-a-month allowance, and he slowly worked his way into some of the most prominent wine circles in the country. He did this primarily through generosity. Here's a quick excerpt from the book. Kerniwan had to do more than merely dangle his purported treasures in front of collectors. He needed to ingratiate himself into their circles. 
That he did with charm and generosity, always ready to uncork precious bottles and pour the contents liberally wherever there were wealthy people who might become clients. Who would not invite a guest who was sure to arrive bearing treasures from his cellar of the wine gods, who among them would not be eager to buy some of those very same bottles from Kernioan, given the opportunity and the means. As we saw there, Rudy was generous with his wine, but he was also generous with other things too. He was known for taking his friends and potential clients out to expensive dinners where he would leave huge tips. At these dinners, he often bought bottles of wine that cost thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars. And he always had a peculiar request. He would ask to keep all the empty bottles and corks, saying his mother liked to save them. This would become a theme to the point where restaurants were shipping cases of empty bottles back to Rudy. And he would complain and get very angry if any of them were broken. With the benefit of hindsight, we can easily see this was a red flag. But while it was happening, I guess it was harder to notice. Rudy became known as someone who was able to get his hands on some of the rarest wine. Of course, he needed an explanation for how he could do that. I want to read you a few passages from the book that explain it pretty clearly. Beginning about 2002 and until spring 2008, as Wall Street plunder and heady real estate values made many Americans rich or richer, Kernewan fed the hunger for the oldest and rarest wine, cost be damned. How had he, still in his 20s, managed to acquire this seemingly limitless load of introvables? Kerniwan offered plausible, if unprovable, explanations. Early on, he claimed to have bought the cellar of a wealthy family in Florida. But even a very large private seller could not keep on giving at the rate that Kerniwan was selling. And so a new, more intriguing story began making the rounds. Kerniwan had acquired, possibly with a partner, a huge trove of old French wines in Europe. It was dubbed the Magic Cellar, or as Acker's John Capon called it, The Cellar. Its lineage was said to go back more than a century, to a time when the then-dominant French retail wine shop chain, Nicholas purchased large quantities of the finest French wines directly from the most renowned vineyards. Barrel aging and bottling took place in Nicholas's own cellars. These wines bore a reserve Nicholas strip around the neck of the bottle and a circular red Establishment Nicholas, or Selection Nicholas stamp, on the main label. A rear strip label, lettered in white on a black background, instructed, This wine must be decanted. Many of Kerniwan's rarest wines carried these markers, supporting his claim that the magic cellar drew its strength from old Nicholas stock. What Rudy did was brilliant, says Paul Wasserman. He exploited the fact that few people knew much about Nicholas's former wine practices. It was rumored that in the old days, the wines had been periodically refreshed and resealed with unbranded corks. That gave Rudy license to sell wines with blank corks. Wasserman was puzzled that many bottles from long-ago vintages sold by Kernewin still had pristine labels. No stranger to Burgundian cellars, he knew that decades-old labels typically develop at least traces of discoloration and mold. Wasserman asked the Burgundian expert Bernard Hervé why so many of Kerniwan's Nicholas Cellar labels had escaped blemish. Hervé responded that it was probably because, unlike French cellars, American cellars tend to be dry. Once the wines arrived here, the mold and staining that humidity causes was reduced. Rudy was great at exploiting this kind of fog, says Wasserman. Very early on, he exhibited this catch-me-if-you-can craftsmanship. He would test people with different bottles. I think he did it very cautiously in the beginning. I was then on Rudy's side. I had a total suspension of disbelief. Okay, let's pause for a second here and dissect a few of the things I just read. First, this sentence. Beginning about 2002 and until spring 2008, as Wall Street plunder and heady real estate values made many Americans rich or richer, Kerniwan fed the hunger for the oldest and rarest wine. Cost be damned. When I read this sentence, something clicked for me. Another maxim, actually. Fraud is a product of the times. So in this case, we were between the dot-com bubble bursting and the great financial crisis, and money was flowing on Wall Street. 
In times when money's easy, people tend to splurge more on luxury goods, and wine is no exception. And when people have extra money, they tend to be less skeptical of how they're spending it, which created an easy environment for fraud in the wine market. There was actually another sentence earlier in the book that said that the wine auction market rose 54% between 2003 and 2006. So there was a lot of money out there chasing wine. Here are a few more examples from the book. Wall Street had taken little notice of the darkening sky. It had dished out $32 billion in bonuses at the end of 2007. Huge sums were still being doled out to 26-year-olds to perform tasks of no obvious social utility, as Michael Lewis put it in the big short. Why not blow a million or so of that on wine? So long as the stock market still floated on automatic pilot, the wine auction market, on the rise for seven years, remained stubbornly strong. A lot of fast money was being spent. It was a wine bubble, much like in 2021 when everyone was spending tens of thousands of dollars on NFTs, which were essentially JPEG image files of cartoon animals. Similar situations have been the case with Madoff, Theranos, and FTX. With Madoff, it was a few things. First, the hyperinflation of the 1970s made people desperately want higher returns with lower risk. That's exactly what Madoff offered. Moderate returns, consistently delivered every month. Second, the deregulatory policies of the 1980 basically gutted the SEC. So Madoff was being policed by an understaffed agency whose employees were less sophisticated than he was. Fraud is a product of the times. With Theranos, it was the low interest rates after the great financial crisis that led to the VC boom. If interest rates hadn't been artificially low, there wouldn't have been as much money pursuing alternative investments. So it would have been harder to find VC investors, and due diligence practices by those investors may have been tighter. Again, fraud is a product of the times. With FTX, it was partially the VC boom and partially the crypto boom, which happened on the back of the COVID stimulus packages. VC investors were looking for places to put their money, and crypto was at the peak of its hype cycle. Everyone wanted to be investing in crypto and Web3. FOMO played a big role here and definitely reduced the quality of due diligence performed by investors. Fraud is a product of the times. So what's the takeaway here? I think this one is particularly challenging to do in real time, but there's value in asking yourself a few questions anyway. What is unique about this point in time that might be making me overlook an issue with this investment? Am I feeling any FOMO around this investment? If this turns out to be a fraud, what is a red flag that I should have noticed? Just stopping and asking yourself a few questions like this might be enough to derail an unhealthy train of thought and help you reframe the situation. Again, remember our maxim, fraud is a product of the times. One other thing I want to touch on here briefly, Rudy exploited the fact that few people knew much about the Nicholas wine practices. He was great at exploiting this kind of fog, as one wine expert put it. This brings to mind two of our maxims we've discussed in previous episodes. Anomalies need explanations and ask an expert. The anomalies as they apply to this specific excerpt I just read revolved around the labels that look too pristine given their age and unbranded corks. These things were both anomalies. They could have had totally reasonable explanations, but they should give someone pause and make them seek the explanations. And in this particular case, since wine is so complicated, the best way to resolve the anomalies is to ask an expert. That could be anything from talking with the owners of the vineyards, to consulting a wine label expert, to consulting a scientist who could test the wine for a specific isotope. More on that later. A lot of Rudy's fake wines could have been spotted before they were sold if the buyers were more discerning. And again, I think I've mentioned this in every episode so far, I'm not here to cast shade on the victims of these frauds. I'm not even saying that I would have spotted the frauds. If I'm being honest with myself, I probably would not have spotted them. But that's the purpose of these discussions we're having. We get to dissect these frauds with the benefit of knowing that they were frauds. We're able to identify all the indicators people could have picked up on. 
And that gives us the best chance of not falling victim to similar schemes in our businesses or investments in the future. Okay, now that we've covered a bit of Rudy's rise, I want to talk about his first hints of trouble. The trouble began in April 2008 during a wine auction at Crew, a restaurant in New York City. Among the offerings that night were 22 lots of wine from Domaine Ponceau, one of the famous wineries in Burgundy, France. Rudy was the owner of these lots, and they were expected to bring in about $750,000. This is from the book, and keep in mind that it happened in the middle of the auction. We've got a little unusual situation here, the auctioneer announced. At the request of the domain and with the agreement of the consigner, we're withdrawing lots 414 through 434. These were all the Ponceau lots listed in the catalog. I guess there were a couple of inconsistencies there, so we had to pull them. John Capon, the auctioneer, made the announcement mid-auction as if it was a recent development. But he actually knew about it well in advance. He just didn't want to announce it in advance because he thought it would put a damper on the rest of the auction. I think this is an important point, and we're going to revisit it later, so keep it in mind. As it turns out, the Ponceau wines weren't the only questionable ones in that auction. This is from the book again. In retrospect, when it came to Old Burgundy, this auction turned out to be deeply layered with deceptions that would only slowly be peeled away. They started with Capon's mid-catalog introduction. Printed in boldface, it introduced a collection of mythic burgundies from an unnamed consigner, although Acker regulars knew that it was Kerniwan. Beside the 22 Ponceau lots, there were dozens more from two other elite Burgundian domains, Armand Rousseau and Georges Rumière. Capon's text painted a tempting picture of how he had managed to wangle uber-rare vintages of these three domains. His overheated prose hit a cold truth. That spring, Kerniwan was a laggard debtor who owed millions of dollars to Acker and a coterie of its wealthy clients who had loaned him the money. The proceeds from that evening's sale of his wines were intended to partially pay down his debts. The Ponceau lots, estimated to fetch three-quarters of a million dollars, were counted on to help Kerniwan dig out. Instead, Laurent Ponceau had rendered them unsaleable. Bidders for the Rousseau and Rumiere offerings from the seller might have felt their enthusiasm dampened had they known the Ponceau lots were to be withdrawn, but Capon withheld that announcement until other lots had been offered. As it was, many sold for handsome prices. Six bottles of Rumiere's 1962 Musigny sold for $45,980. A case of the 1949 Rousseau Chambertine went for $72,600. A Jeroboam of the same wine fetched $50,820. Yet many of those lots were also suspect, even if the domains that supposedly made them had not protested as Ponceau had done. Some bottles bore the stickers or stamps of two long-established overseas retailers, ostensibly conferring a level of trust that they had been impeccably sourced. But that trust was open to question. Neither Barry Bros and Rudd, the London dealer founded in 1698, nor Nicholas, founded in 1822, and the stated source of so many of Kerniwan's rarest wines, appear to have sold certain wines emblazoned with their logos. Case in point, those 1949 Rousseau bottles all bore a circular Barry Bros and Rudd sticker stating, by appointment to H.M. the Queen, wine and spirits merchants. Alan Griffiths, BB&R's wine director at the time, searched for the old Rousseau wines in his firm's modern computerized records, and in a handwritten ledger from an earlier era he found that it does not appear that these wines have been through our hands. And he further noted that the circular stickers on the bottles shown in catalog photos of the Rousseau lots are a design introduced in the 1990s. They superseded the stickers that would have been used for the 1949 vintage. And then this is one more related excerpt. And perhaps not even Capon was rock certain that all the lots from the seller he offered that April evening were the real thing. Many previous Acker catalogs were more sparsely illustrated than this one. It featured page after page of full-color photos of the rare wines on offer. Was Capon putting prospective bidders on notice to look very carefully? If they did, they would have found numerous details to question, even if they were not privy to what the winemakers knew. 
Why did labels on purportedly very old bottles look brand new, as on the 1949 Rumier Bon Mar, or various vintages of Rousseau Chambertin Clos de Bays? Dazzling white was not the norm for labels on bottles that had spent decades in a damp cellar. And wasn't it puzzling that the heavy deposit in the neck of the 1929 Ponceau Clos de la Roche suggested that the bottle was indeed very old, yet the label looked new, as if an octogenarian's face were smooth as a child's. Okay, let's rewind a few weeks and talk about how those wines ended up getting pulled from the auction. A prominent Burgundy critic, Alan Meadows, had the chance to taste a 1959 Ponceau Claus Saint Denis. Excuse my French pronunciations here. If you haven't picked up on it yet, I don't speak French, so I'm not very good at this. Anyway, Meadows had tasted this 1959 wine at a tasting hosted by John Capon, who's the auctioneer, in early April when he was previewing some of the wines to be offered at the upcoming auction. Upon returning home after the tasting, Meadows checked his notes and confirmed the oldest close Saint-Denis he'd ever had was a 1985. Then he called his friend Doug Barzillet, another prominent Burgundy fan. Doug said he'd also seen the catalog advertising the auction, and similarly, the oldest close Saint-Denis he'd ever tasted was also a 1985. Back to the book here. Checking the winery's website, Meadows and Barzillet confirmed that the domain first produced Klaus Saint-Denis in 1982. Ponceau was at his desk three days before the auction at Crewe when Barzillet called to alert him to the impending sale and to inquire whether there was some way the Ponceau label might appear on vintages of Klaus Saint-Denis going back to 1945, the oldest being offered in the Acker catalog. It's a good thing I was sitting down or else I would have fallen over, Ponceau says. Ponceau studied the full-page color photos of the wines in Acker's online catalog. They were sure to quicken the hearts of unsuspecting collectors hungering to own iconic Burgundy unavailable anywhere except from the cellar. Ponceau saw only fakery. One photo showed 12 bottles of 1962 Clos de la Roche, each topped with a bumpy, dull red wax capsule. Ponceau knew that the only time the domain used wax to seal the crown was in the winter of 1985, when he used red wax to reseal the oldest bottles in his home cellar. Some of those bottles were sold at a charity auction in London, but unlike the wax crowns in the Acker photos, Ponceau's rewaxed bottles, some of which remain in the domain's cellar, are smooth instead of bumpy, bright red rather than dull red. Another tip-off that all was not well with this 1962 Clos de la Roche, as shown in the catalog, the label stated an old vine designation that Ponceau says was debuted only years later. Pasted on the necks of all these bottles were reserved Nicholas strip labels, the lettering white on a shiny black background. The Nicholas provenance might have inspired confidence in prospective bidders, except that Ponceau insists his family never sold its wines to Nicholas. Disconcertingly, most of the Nicholas stickers looked fresh and new. Turning the page, Ponceau got another surprise, a full-page photo of a single bottle of 1929 Clos de la Roche. The bottle looked its age, with heavy sediment adhering to its glass neck, an indicator of decades of lying on its side. The wax capsule was badly faded and cracked. The label stated, bottled at the property. That, says Ponceau, could not be. My grandfather did not bottle his wine at our domain until 1934. One more error. Some Clos de la Roche importer's strip labels seen in the photos bore the name of Alexis Lachine, an importer who never dealt with the family. Expertly counterfeited wines, both the bottle and the wine within, are hard to convict beyond a shadow of a doubt. Here, as offered in the Acker catalog, was the rare open-and-shut case. Ponceau turned thumbs down on the full array of 32 bottles and six magnums of Ponceau Claus Saint-Denis. Ponceau authorized Barzillet, a client of Acker and a friend of John Capon, to call the auctioneer on his behalf. Barzillet informed Capon that Ponceau wanted all 22 lots bearing his family's name to be withdrawn from the crew auction. 
John was clearly not happy about this, though he agreed to do it, says Barzillay. He did not, however, want to make any announcement ahead of the sale. So just to give a little recap here, we have an upcoming auction offering an unlikely assortment of fine wine from Domaine Ponceau. We have two Burgundy critics who were skeptical of the offerings, so they contacted the owner of the domain, Lorem Ponceau. And Ponceau confirmed, without a doubt, that the wines were in fact fake. So what happens next? Ponceau flies to New York City to attend the auction and make sure that the wines aren't sold. Then, the next day, Capon organizes a lunch with Ponceau, Rudy, and Doug Barzillet. Here's what happened at the lunch. After the usual salutations, I asked the question I had in mind, Ponceau says. Where are these bottles coming from? Can you give me the source? At that moment, I saw Rudy looking down at his plate. He said, I buy so many bottles, I don't remember where I got all of them from. That response did not sit well with Ponceau. It was bizarre that someone can have in his hands 84 bottles of very old Ponceau. I myself had never known of so many very old bottles supposedly from my winery in one place. How could you not remember where they're coming from, especially if you paid a lot of money for them? If I had bought a Maserati, I would remember the details of that. I wasn't yet sure if Rudy was a victim or predator, is how Ponceau put it. So after this lunch, Ponceau returned to France and gave Rudy a few more weeks before emailing him and asking again for the source of the fake wines. Rudy responded that he had bought the wines from the seller of Pac Hendra in Asia. Excited to learn more about Pac Hendra, Ponceau returned to the U.S. in July and dined with Rudy again. Here's what happened. As they sipped wine, Ponceau thanked Kerniwan for providing him with the name of Pac Hendra. Now you must give me more details about this Mr. Hendra. Kerniwan fumbled for a scrap of paper and scribbled down two telephone numbers, which he said were for Pac Hendra. Both were in Jakarta, Indonesia, not a city known as a reliable source of very rare Burgundy. That name and two phone numbers, Kerniwan claimed, were all the information he had concerning the source of the faux Ponceaux. Before they parted, Kerniwan asked Ponceau for a favor. Would he be willing to come to Kerniwan's wine storage house to check the authenticity of some of his old wines? As he often did, Kerniwan was declaring himself a defender of real wine. Perhaps Ponceau might have done that, but not until the matter of the 22 lots of faux Ponceau was settled. Back in his office in Maury saint denis Ponceau dialed each number. The first went unanswered. The second sounded like a fax number. From friends in Asia, Ponceau later learned that Pak means Mr. in Indonesian, and that Hendra is as common a name as Smith is in English-speaking countries. In effect, Kerniwan had provided him with a name that was the equivalent of Mr. Smith in a country with a population of nearly 250 million people. My friends who are collectors in Singapore told me that if anyone was selling such rare Ponceau bottles anywhere in Asia, they would have known about it, Ponceau says. In any case, my feeling was that these bottles had never seen Indonesia. As to where he now thought Rudy should be placed on the predator or victim spectrum, Ponceau says the percentage changed, not to the good. There's one thing I think is worth pointing out from that last excerpt. Rudy asked Ponceau to come to his warehouse and check the authenticity of his older wines. I mention this because it's a theme we've seen with Madoff and SBF as well, cozying up to authority figures. Madoff had a good reputation and relationship with regulators because he helped pioneer the early technology on the NASDAQ. He was also on the NASDAQ's board of governors, and he was the chairman of the NASDAQ. Similarly, SBF was one of the only people running a crypto company who was trying to cooperate with regulators. He was trying to obtain licenses in the U.S. He was helping legislators write the laws on crypto. He even testified before Congress. I think a good lesson here is to be wary of those who court authority. Those people might be keeping their enemies close. There's a difference between following the rules in the schoolyard and bringing an apple to your principal every day. The former's good behavior, the latter, suspicious. Speaking of suspicious, I want to talk a bit about bad incentives. 
This is actually something we saw come up in the Madoff episode. A lot of the money invested with Madoff was invested through hedge funds. Those hedge funds were making a ton of money on the fees they charged to their clients. But when the hedge funds wanted to conduct thorough due diligence, they were often met with resistance from Madoff. He would simply tell them to take their money out and leave them alone. So they had two options. Stop pestering Madoff and quietly collect their management fees, despite unanswered questions, or take their money elsewhere. They had bad incentives. Keeping quiet, despite unanswered questions, meant that they got to keep collecting management fees from their clients. But keeping quiet also meant that their clients were potentially invested in something that was risky or an otherwise bad investment, which obviously proved to be the case. The same was basically true with the wine auctioneers and auction houses in this story. The first thing to know about wine auctions is that they tack on a buyer's premium to the sale price, and that premium is typically around 20%. On some of these Rudy auctions, like Sellers 1 and 2 that I mentioned in the beginning, the auction houses were making multiple millions in a single auction. Of course, they wouldn't want to taint their reputation and intentionally sell fake wine, but they also don't have a strong incentive to look too closely at what they're offering. Their incentives are not necessarily aligned with the buyer's best interests. I mentioned John Capon earlier. He was the auctioneer at the auction house Acker, Merrill, and Condit. He was also a friend of Rudy's, and he was responsible for catapulting Acker to the top of the wine auction world. This is an excerpt from the book. Capon kept his sights on raising Acker to the auction market's top spot. One way to draw in more bidders was to convert his auctions into occasions to eat, drink, and be merry. Once Crew opened in 2004, it became his favorite venue. High-value wines were poured nonstop. When Capon took a break from selling, he glided among his guests like a sommelier. Capon had figured out that when wine is flowing, you're more likely to raise your paddle and bid higher than if you stayed dry. In 2005, Acker's sales of $18.7 million put the firm in fourth place among all auctioneers, far behind pace setter Christie's at $41.9 million. The next year, fueled by Kearneywin's Seller 1 and Seller 2 auctions at Cafe Grey, Acker leaped to first place, with sales up a startling 222% to $60.25 million. Ever the Iron Man, Capon remained at the podium hour after hour at the record-breaking $24.7 million Seller 2 sale, personally gaveling down all 1,458 lots. Before those two sales, John was selling some very nice stuff, but it was smaller consignments, onesies and twosies, says Barzillet. The reality is that Rudy was integral to the leap that his business made. So as we saw there, Capon and his auction house were rising to the top of the wine world on the back of Rudy's wines. Even if Capon did suspect some of Rudy's wines were fake, he was incentivized to keep selling them, despite the best interests of his clients. And we know that Capon made some questionable moves. As I mentioned earlier, he knew that he would be withdrawing the Ponceau wines from the auction in April of 2008, well before the auction happened, but he waited to announce this until mid-auction. He did this because he didn't want to raise any questions about the other wines on offer and make potential bidders rethink spending their money. In reality, this probably should have made him more closely question the other wines on offer, but that was not in his best interest. Something else to know about Capon. About a year before the Ponceau auction, he took to an online bulletin board to defend Rudy against other allegations. In that post, he noted that Rudy offers a money-back guarantee on every bottle of wine he sells. This is from the book again. Even as Capon fiercely defended Kerniawan, he had to know that troubles were roiling in Kerniawan's world. Only four months earlier, just before an auction in Los Angeles, Christie's had been forced to withdraw six magnums of 1982 Chateau Le Pin, a Pomerol produced in even smaller quantity than Lafleur and in high demand. Their consigner was Kerniawan. Capon also knew all too well a closely guarded secret. Significant numbers of wines purchased at Kerniawan's record-breaking Cellar 2 auction the previous October were now being returned as buyers took advantage of a 90-day money-back guarantee on problematic bottles. Capon had refunded their money, and it was up to him to get Kerniawan to reimburse him. 
Still, Capon had invested too much in Kerniwan, drunk too many mind-blowing wines provided by him, and sold too many wines that were not returned to allow himself to confront the unthinkable, that Kerniwan might be a con man. So even despite having some cause for concern, Capon wasn't shying away from Rudy or his wine yet. I think this is important to reflect on for a moment. Capon had some signs that at least should have given him pause, and he didn't hesitate, at least publicly, to defend Rudy and dismiss allegations of bad behavior. I'm not saying Capon should have known. That's for somebody smarter than me to decide. What I am saying is that he was incentivized not to know. Rudy was his friend, but more importantly, Rudy was his goose that laid the golden egg. I think this is the perfect example of two of our maxims going hand in hand with each other. The first, beware of bad incentives, and the second, desire is blinding. You need to beware of bad incentives because desire is blinding. If a person or institution is going to make money off of something being true, they won't want to see any reason for it being false. If you're able to identify the incentives of the person or company you're dealing with, you'll have a better chance of understanding if those incentives are aligned with your incentives. If not, you'll either want to walk away or proceed with more caution. I want to cover one more quick example to illustrate that this is, in fact, a theme and not just a one-off incident. This is another excerpt from the book. Jeffrey Troy was as upset as Capon over the impending Christie's auction, but for a different reason. As required by state law, Christie's needed a retail partner, and for years it had been Troy's firm. On catalog covers, its name came first, New York Wines Christie's. Troy's own name was listed on the inside front cover, along with the listings of Christie's staff. Troy had sounded an early alarm about the faux Ponceau wines. More than a year later, Kerniwan had yet to reveal their source to Ponceau or Capon. His reputation among collectors was badly compromised. When Kerniwan was flying high, Troy had sold him more than $4 million worth of wine. Real wine, says Troy. Yet here was Christie's about to offer 56 Kerniwan lots at a September 2009 auction and 139 more in October. In neither catalog was the consigner identified beyond being described as a longtime friend to Christie's. Given that Kerniwan was just turning 33, that characterization was a bit of a stretch. Bluntly put, both catalogs were studded with photos of certain bottles that appeared to be hugely expensive counterfeits, each carrying tiny but telling anomalies that were the marks of Christie's longtime friend. There was a four-bottle lot of 1959 Romanet Conti, sold for $28,800, and a five-bottle lot of 1962 Romanet Conti, sold for $48,000. Two magnums of 1962 Latache, sold for about $42,000. Clearly visible in the full-page photos of most of these bottles on the main labels were the errant accents over proprietaire that did not appear on the authentic bottles until years later. Elsewhere, in photos of other bottles, bumpy, dull red wax capsules similarly betrayed Kerniwan's handiwork. Troy felt it was wrong, dishonest even, to offer Kerniwan's dicey wines to unsuspecting bidders. Christie's, after all, had already been stung by the debacle of the six magnums of Lepin it had been forced to withdraw in 2007. Troy put his protest in a letter to the auctioneer and also wrote a spate of emails opposing the sale. Additionally, he complained to Charles Curtis, the recently appointed head wine specialist for Christie's in North America. Deep into the night prior to the September 12th auction, according to Troy, Christie's lawyers and wine specialists pondered what to do. Christie's London-based head of wine, David Ellswood, joined in the deliberations. In the end, the assembled experts and lawyers opted to go forward with selling the wine. Proceeds from the September sales totaled $698,326. The October sales brought in another $508,050. Troy soon separated from Christie's as its retail partner. Curtis, a master of wine, was promoted to head of wine sales for North America, then took over as head of wine for Christie's Asia. 
So this wasn't a problem that was limited to Capon and his auction house. Christie's, another auction house, followed their incentives as well, to the detriment of their clients. As we saw there, Christie's was incentivized to sell suspect wine because it brought in a lot of money. And then down another level, Charles Curtis, the head wine specialist for Christie's North America, to whom Troy complained, probably could have prevented the sale of the wine. But he didn't. And what happened? He got promoted. Beware of bad incentives. The next part I want to talk about are the rich people who Rudy ripped off. These people seemingly had more money than cents, but that couldn't be the case. These were CEOs and people who had made a lot of money by being smart and savvy. Studying this section will help us answer one of the big questions I outlined in the trailer episode for this season. How do otherwise intelligent people get tricked? Check out this excerpt from the book. Kernywin morphed quickly from wine neophyte to rare wine dealer trusted by corporate titans. At just 26, he was cultivating Brian Devine, then CEO and chairman of the giant Petco pet supply chain with 1,500 stores in the United States, Mexico, and Puerto Rico. So that sets the scene for what's about to happen here. Rudy sent Devine an email under the alias Lenny Tan. Now, this is kind of confusing, but Devine somehow got connected with Lenny Tan and was using this person as his wine dealer. Devine had never met Tan in person and had no idea it was actually Rudy. So he received this email about an offering from a huge seller Lenny had purportedly purchased from a family in Florida. I'm going to jump back into the book here. Four days after receiving the most incredible offering, Devine promised to send Lenny a check for $638,183 and added, P.S. I have spent $1.5 million in three months. Glad I haven't known you for years or my wife would have shot me. By July 2005, Devine had written 34 checks to Lenny, totaling $5,320,602.50. At no time did he meet his dealer or suspect that he was actually Kerniwan. All of my purchases were done through internet communications, Devine wrote in an affidavit in June 2014. In 2005, Devine attempted to sell a large trove of his wine, most of it purchased from Lenny, through New York auctioneer Zaki's. The consignment was rejected, along with a return-to-owner list from Jeff Smith of Carte Devin, a wine management firm. Devine received a letter stating that Zaki's took a very hard line on anything and everything from Lenny Tan. Sadly, this represents the most of the juiciest stuff in the parcel. Juicy, but also, as bottle-by-bottle inspection showed, amateurishly fabricated. Some bottles bearing the names of prestigious wineries were sealed with corks that were too short or blank rather than being branded with the names of the properties and the vintage. Other corks showed signs of the original vintage having been sanded off and replaced with a more desirable vintage. So that showed the CEO of Petco getting conned out of more than $5 million by Rudy. But that wasn't an outlier. Here's another example. Like Brian Devine, another corporate titan who put full trust in Kerniwan was billionaire David Doyle, co-founder of Quest Software. A global seeker of the best in food and drink, Doyle purchased epic amounts of wine from Kerniwan. Just three months after the gigantic Romane Conte tasting, Doyle received an offer from Kerniwan to purchase six bottles of 1945 Romane Conte. The price was $13,000 each. They were in a parcel whose total price was more than $3 million. The next day, Kerniwan's Wells Fargo account received a wire deposit from Doyle for $3,227,000. For months after alarm bells rang at the Faux Ponceau auction, Doyle was still trusting. 20 days after that auction, he wired $3.9 million to Kerniwan. Three months later, he remitted an additional $1.5 million. His total purchases from Kerniwan mounted to more than $15 million. All payments were wire transfers except for one, a 2004 Aston Martin Vanquish V12 sports car with just 850 miles on the odometer. Doyle valued the car at $200,000. 
So there's CEO number two fleeced out of millions of dollars, but that's not all. Another trusting customer was Michael Facitelli, the former CEO of Vornado Realty Trust, and before that, head of real estate at Goldman Sachs. Facitelli is a legendary dealmaker, but when it came to wine, he was no match for Kernewan. In autumn 2006, Kernewan convinced Facitelli to purchase 914 bottles of ultra-rare wine. Facitelli wired payment of $5.5 million. Delivery was promised for the end of December. By the following spring, just 812 bottles had arrived. Robert Bohr was hired by Facitelli as his wine consultant, but too late for him to head off the deal with Kernewan. We were in his living room and his wife was in the kitchen when he showed me the spreadsheet of what he'd bought, Bohr tells me. I said, Mike, there's no way. People really wanted to believe. They really thought that one individual was special enough to have a full case of 1959 Romier Musigny. At Crew, we had one of the biggest allocations of Rumier in the country, but we only got two bottles of his Messigny. It took eight months for most, but not all, of Facitelli's wines to arrive at a Maranek, New York warehouse. Instead of being in its original containers, they were in liquor boxes and acker cartons. Bohr, his business partner David Beckwith, and a third expert inspected each bottle. We all came to the same conclusion, says Bohr. If these wines had been stored in a hermetically sealed vault in Switzerland, they would not have looked this good. Still, we had no proof. Facitelli heeded Bohr's suggestion that he hire an independent expert to inspect the wine. They selected Michael Egan, a respected Bordeaux-based consultant. His judgment, after spending three days in the warehouse, was that 691 of the 812 bottles, 85%, were fakes. Kernewan had one more deal for Facitelli, which he proposed in early April 2008. This one dwarfed the earlier transaction. Its cascade of heroic labels and vintages of Bordeaux and Burgundy filled eight closely spaced pages. Kernewan estimated the value of this trove at $53.5 million, but he was willing to sell it all to Facitelli for the bargain price of just $30 million. Buried in this offering was an astonishing cache of 220 bottles of Ponceau Claus Saint-Denis in vintages 1929 to 1971. For Kernewan, the timing of his offering could not have been worse. Barely one week after Facitelli received the spreadsheet, Laurent Ponceau declared that Claus Saint-Denis from these vintages never existed. That makes three CEOs who all lost huge sums of money to Rudy. I want to point out a couple things here that I think are useful for us. The first is that all these guys were high-performing CEOs. They were experts at leading companies, but that expertise did not transfer over to wine. Morgan Housel has a great article called Degrees of Confidence. I'll link to it in the show notes. It basically says that the more of an expert you are in one area, the more you mistakenly feel like your expertise spills over to other areas. So otherwise intelligent people may be more susceptible to fraud because they are overconfident in their abilities and thus less wary of being wrong about something. The second is a theme that was common with each of these three CEOs. Rudy made them each feel like they were getting exclusive access to an opportunity that nobody else would get. He basically played on their egos and made them feel special. In reality, the only thing that made them special was that they had enough money to be a worthy target of a fraud. And the last thing is one of our maxims that pops up in every episode. Ask an expert. Two of the three guys I mentioned above consulted experts after purchasing the wine, after they had already been conned. If they had added this simple step before buying, they would have avoided a huge headache and saved a lot of money. What's also interesting is that interspersed between the examples of the CEOs are examples of true wine experts who were all skeptical of Rudy. One noticed an oxidative quality in all of Rudy's wines. Another was skeptical about the number of extremely rare wines Rudy had access to. A third asked for documentation proving provenance before she would buy. Rudy couldn't produce it, so she passed. Ask an expert is possibly our most important maxim because in nearly every example we've studied so far, the experts smelled a fraud almost immediately whereas the non-experts were conned pretty much every time. 
All right, I'll put a cap on this section with one more quote from the book. This is about Bill Koch, another rich CEO who bought bad wine, and one of the people responsible for bringing Rudy down. This is from the book. On the witness stand, Koch admitted that until the day he discovered that his Jefferson bottles were a scam, he had never bothered to check out the provenance of his multi-million dollar wine purchases. I was bloody naive, Koch testified. In hindsight, I was stupid. Hearing that, defense lawyer Arthur Schartzis raised an eyebrow. Mr. Koch, you own a $4 billion company. How naive are you, he asked. When it comes to my hobbies, my biggest fault is that I'm too trusting, Koch said. And that's a good introduction to Bill Koch, possibly the main reason Rudy ever got caught. Koch was a huge collector of wine. His cellar, spread between Florida and Cape Cod, contained 40,000 bottles. In 2005, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts put together an exhibition on Koch's collections. Among the treasures they wanted to display were his Jefferson bottles. These were bottles of wine that purportedly had belonged to Thomas Jefferson. But before the museum would display the bottles, they wanted documentation on their provenance. They needed to know the bottles had actually belonged to Jefferson. The problem was that Koch didn't have any paperwork, so he hired a team of investigators who confirmed that the bottles were fake. After visiting the Corning Museum of Glass, the investigators learned that Jefferson's initials etched on the bottles were done with either a dental drill or a Dremel tool, obviously neither of which existed in 1787. This is from the book. In fact, the provenance of the Jefferson bottles was always alarm bell sketchy. The tale told by their purveyor, Hardy Rodenstock, was that the bottles were discovered sealed away behind a wall in the cellar of an ancient house in Paris that was being demolished. Rodenstock waved away the two obvious questions, who had sold the bottles and what was the location of the house? The French are loath to pay taxes, he explained, and therefore the seller wanted neither his identity revealed nor the spot where the bottles had supposedly slumbered for centuries. It now dawned on Coke that his Jefferson bottles might more accurately be called the Rodenstock bottles. So this Jefferson bottle debacle sent Coke down a rabbit hole to verify the provenance of the rest of his collection. It turned out that about 400 of his 40,000 bottles were fakes, which doesn't sound like many, but these were among the most expensive bottles. Coke would spend years and more than $20 million on the investigations. He hired former FBA, CIA, and MI6 agents to conduct these investigations all over the world. So this next part is about how Rudy ended up getting prosecuted, and it's, it's wild. It's an almost unbelievable story. As chance would have it, The New Yorker published an article titled The Jefferson Bottles, which detailed Koch's conquest against the fraudsters of the wine industry. This article mentioned that Koch had hired a former FBI agent to build a dossier to give to the Justice Department with the goal of prosecuting Hardy Rodenstock, the guy who sold him the Jefferson Bottles. So on a flight in 2007, a man named Jason Hernandez read that article. This guy was hoping to soon be an assistant U.S. attorney, and he also hoped he might be able to work on this case because he was a collector of wine, so he was kind of interested in this stuff. Fast forward to 2008, one year later, and Hernandez did get that job as an assistant U.S. attorney in New York. Now, in another crazy twist of fate, he was working on an art fraud case with FBI Special Agent James Wynn. In an offhand conversation, I think it was on like a car ride back to the office, Hernandez asked Wynn if he knew who was working the Jefferson Bottle case that he'd read about in The New Yorker. That's my case, said Wynn. A few other prosecutors had worked on the case, but it had been put on the shelf. Now, entirely due to chance... Hernandez and Wynn would work this case together, and it would lead to the downfall of Rudy. This is from the book. I learned that Jim Wynn never gives up on anything, Hernandez says. So he was thrilled, really thrilled, that somebody was affirmatively interested in this backburner case and would pursue it. The earliest information in the file was about Hardy Rodenstock and the Jefferson bottles. Much of that was on the wrong side of the statute of limitations. But Hernandez also found quite a bit of more recent information about Rudy Kernuan. Jim and I chose to focus on him because this was going to be the most provable case. Most provable thanks to the previous year's faux ponceau auction, 
Before that auction, Rudy had quite a few defenders, says Hernandez, but that dramatically changed when he failed to identify the source of the Ponceau bottles and collectors were suddenly having trouble reselling his wines. So I want to take you through their investigation at a high level and then also touch on some of the red flags that Rudy was throwing off throughout his days as a fraudster. The bulk of their investigation was built upon Rudy's bank and credit card records along with his emails, all of which they gained access to through subpoenas, presumably based on the evidence provided from Bill Koch's dossier. Here are some excerpts from the book. Three years earlier, Lorraine Ponceau had been puzzling over whether Kerniwan was a victim or villain. As Hernandez and Wynn began their investigation, they asked the same question. Had Kerniwan been duped into selling fakes that he had unknowingly purchased from one or more of the many domestic and European dealers from whom he was buying vast quantities of wine? Or did he have a direct and knowing hand in sourcing them? The answer took shape only after long hours of combing through thousands of emails sent and received via Kerniwan's most used of three accounts, rh8 at hotmail.com. You go through line by line, Hernandez says. Probably one reason no previous prosecutor had done it is because it's incredibly time-consuming. Scattered among Kerniwan's massive wine purchases, boutique forays, and restaurant tabs on his monthly credit card bills, the investigators found what Hernandez calls the occasional gems. A Lamborghini driving guy can be buying office supplies and paper towels from Staples like the rest of us, Hernandez says. But why the heck did he buy 13 packages of warm white ingress paper, ink pads in various colors, and large amounts of French wax? Why was he asking for empty bottles to be shipped home after expensive meals? That seemed to be telling us something. And where was Kerniwan acquiring the bottles? One source was the New York restaurant crew, seen of those deep into the night bacchanals where he often picked up the entire check. Koch's earlier investigation had turned up the information that 17 shipments of empty bottles from those dinners had been FedExed to Kerniwan's home. The investigators also learned that Kerniwan had insisted on the return of at least 200 empty bottles and their corks from dinners he hosted at Melise in Santa Monica. Yet more empty bottles were FedExed to his home from the extraordinary three-day tasting of 74 vintages of Romane Conti organized by Doug Barzillet at New York restaurant Per Se in April 2007. Kerniwan contributed a number of vintages to that event, then pestered Barzillet until the empty bottles arrived. So Rudy obviously had this habit of requesting his empty bottles to be returned, and with the benefit of hindsight, this seems incredibly suspicious, especially because he always did it. He wasn't just asking for an empty bottle back here and there when it was a special occasion. He made a practice of making sure all the bottles were returned. So maybe we wouldn't have thought anything of this at the time either, but it was a big red flag and probably something somebody should have picked up on. Interestingly, as part of the investigation, they also learned that Rudy bought hundreds of old commercial-grade wines, not to sell, but so he would have the old bottles that he could refill. Old bottles were distinct. They were usually hand-blown and heavier than new bottles, so if Rudy was selling fake old wine, he needed old bottles to put the wine in. Another thing that he would do was buy old commercial-grade Burgundy. He bought a lot of high-quality wine from a British dealer, but he also purchased from them a significant amount of Burgundy that was not collectible grade. It would not have sold for handsome prices. Only looking back now, we can see that Rudy would use these wines to blend and refill his old bottles and pass them off as rare gems. One other thing I found interesting was one of the investigation techniques Bill Koch's people used. They used a gamma ray detector to test supposedly very old bottles for traces of the radioactive isotope cesium-137. And this, this piece is really interesting. Ever since the first nuclear bomb test in 1945, all wine has a trace of cesium-137. All wine produced before that time does not have it. They had multiple occasions where they tested wine that was supposed to be from vintages prior to 1945, and it tested positive for the isotope. And then this example about labels was also interesting. This happened during an earlier trial involving Bill Koch. This is from the book. A refreshing moment of showmanship occurred during the testimony of James Martin, a materials analysis expert hired by Koch. 
Martin's job was to put a time frame on the Greenberg bottles by analyzing and dating the paper and printing of their labels. Rising from the witness chair late in the afternoon of the seventh day of trial, Martin was permitted to approach the jury box. He handed a bottle labeled 1928 Chateau Latour, one of Koch's purchases from Greenberg, to a female juror. Let's do a little show and tell, Martin said. Giving an ultraviolet flashlight to the juror, he instructed her to shine it on the label of the bottle. Instantly, the pale ivory label fluoresced bright blue. Now shine it on my white shirt, Martin said. It too fluoresced bright blue. This was happening, Martin explained, because both the label paper and the detergent residue in his shirt contained optical brightening agents that were not used until the 1950s. The ink on the label and the glue used to affix it to the bottle were also unavailable at the time the wine would have been bottled. Martin told the jury that these anachronistic markers were as strikingly wrong as if a photo showed President John F. Kennedy using an iPhone. So again and again, we see stark examples in the value of one of our maxims. Ask an expert. I know I mentioned this already, but I think it's so interesting that Coke and these other rich guys hired experts after they had already purchased the wine, but they never thought to do it before the purchase. If they had, it would have saved them a lot of money. Their pain is a great reminder for us. There's no shame in not knowing something. The smartest people will consult an expert when it's important rather than just trying to figure it out on their own. That's a recipe for losing money. Okay, let's jump back to the investigation here. Hernandez and Wynn built a strong case against Rudy, and then they moved to arrest him. At 6 a.m. on March 8, 2012, the FBI knocked on Rudy's door with an arrest warrant. After he came to the door, they put him in cuffs and performed a protective sweep of the house where they discovered his entire counterfeiting operation. These excerpts are from the book. Toward the rear, he came upon a locked room. Out on the lawn, agents asked Kernywin for the key. It was in his pocket. The agents unlocked the room. Eleven feet square, it was lined on four sides with wine racks. In one corner were three file cabinets. As the agent recounted later that day in his belated application for a search warrant, the agents discovered bags containing white labels, bags of wine corks, wax used to seal corks, rubber stamps used to stamp the year of a wine vintage, empty bottles of wine, including large format bottles, wooden wine crates, bottles submerged in water to aid removing the labels, computer equipment, including printers, and stacks of pre-printed wine labels printed on high-quality paper. In-progress counterfeiting operations were also evident in the kitchen, living room, and family room. Bottles were soaking in the kitchen sink to remove their labels prior to being transformed into other wines. Items that Hernandez and Wynn previously knew only from Kernywan's emails now became real. Myriad bottles, old and young, French and Californian, full, empty, and half full, were tucked into wine racks or scattered on the floor. Small bottles were filled with wine under reclosable stoppers. Some bottles had notes scrawled on them, used for 30s, 40s DRC, used for 1950s Pomerol. And so Kernywan's method of creating counterfeits of classic French wines began to clarify. First, he soaked the labels off very old commercial-grade wines in the kitchen sink. The Patriarch Corton and Richebourg bottles appeared to be poised for that. The bottles would then be uncorked and a portion poured out. An equal portion of premium or mundane California wines would be poured in. Thanks to his tasting acumen, Kernywan could fine-tune a custom blend to mimic the wine he was planning to sell. If he got it right, a purchaser, even one familiar with the authentic wine, would swirl, sniff, taste, and marvel at the result. The discovery of the elaborate wine counterfeiting shop in Kernywan's house was what Wynn called a jaw-dropper. Although counterfeiting materials had been mailed to Kernywan's home, logic dictated that the workshop would have been located elsewhere, possibly in a commercial wine warehouse where Kernywan stored his wine in a space custom-built for him. Two months after his arrest, a New York federal grand jury indicted Kernywan on four counts of mail and wire fraud, selling counterfeit wine, defrauding fine art capital, double-pledging collateral, and scheming to defraud a California collector and a New York auction house. A superseding indictment would reduce the charges to just two counts, one scheme to sell counterfeit wine and another to defraud a finance company. 
The defendant was flown to New York by the U.S. Marshal Service. He took up involuntary residence in Brooklyn's Metropolitan Detention Center. As I read to you at the very beginning of the episode, Rudy was found guilty. The judge calculated that he was responsible for about $25 million in losses, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Toward the end of the book, the author raised a good question. He wrote, As for the fake bottles his wealthy clients bought from him, do these folks not bear some responsibility for not doing their due diligence before throwing silly quantities of money at Kernewin wine? Absent the guile of a consummate con man, they would have held tight to their money and their common sense. Part and parcel of that guile was Kernewin's way of seeming incapable of it. I was surprised when I heard that he was producing fake bottles, Albert Delvillain wrote to me. I didn't look at him as capable of doing this. The two times I met him, he gave me the impression of a lightweight. So two important things here. First, the question, do these people not bear some responsibility for not doing their due diligence? I think the answer to that question is absolutely yes. And that's why we're studying these frauds, because it's easy to skip due diligence or to do it poorly. But hopefully with all these reminders, we won't make the same mistakes. The other important point is that Rudy seemed incapable of his crimes, so few people ever suspected him. This is a theme. When the SEC was investigating Bernie Madoff, they thought the same thing. They thought he didn't fit the picture of a criminal, and that clouded the rest of their investigation. So what's our lesson here? Anyone can be a fraudster, even if they seem incapable of it. Don't let your guard down. Verify everything. All right, it's time to put a bow on this one with one more excerpt from the book. On January 9th, 2021, Kernewan will have served out his sentence. Awaiting him at the prison door will be immigration and customs enforcement agents who will detain him. As an undocumented immigrant and former felon, he will be deported on the first available flight to Jakarta. Left behind will be several legacies. One is a lesson that applies to us all, even teetotalers. A masterly con man will always be one step ahead of us. He will push the right emotional buttons when the moment is right, and we will do his bidding. Our confidence in our invulnerability is the weakness he will profit from. And that is where I'll leave you. Hopefully by studying people like Rudy Kernewan, Sam Bankman-Fried, Elizabeth Holmes, Bernie Madoff, and all the other fraudsters we're going to talk about this season, we can identify and avoid fraud in our businesses and investments. If you enjoyed this episode, I recommend buying the book. As always, it has more detail than I'm able to cover in one podcast episode. And if you're a wine lover or collector, this one is especially interesting. If you do buy the book using the link in the show notes, you'll be supporting the podcast, which I very much appreciate. And with that, we're one book closer to avoiding fraud as investors and entrepreneurs.